Let us uh, move on now into our teaching for this morning. We're continuing in our series on the life of David. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to pick up where we had left off in that chapter last week and then go into chapter 17. If you don't have your Bible with you or you're having a hard time finding that passage, can't find it, no worries because we'll have the words on the screens here next to me so you'll you'll be able to follow along there. Nobody will get left behind. Once again, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 16. All right, well, it looks like we're all about ready, so we'll go ahead and get, get started jumping in here. Um, I do. I, let me remind you about this also real quickly, that I make my sermon notes available to you each week. Just want to throw that out there because there is a lot in the sermon. There is, I'm going to be referencing a lot of different passages. And so if you're a note taker and you are m- missing what I'm saying just because you're trying to write things down or you're just having trouble keeping up, don't worry, remember, you can go and download my notes later. And so uh, they'll put that slide back up later on in the service so you can know how to do that. All right, let us uh, begin. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 15, and then we're going to read through verse 14 in chapter 17. So let's get started. Now Absalom and all the Israelites came to Jerusalem. Ahithophel was also with him. When David's friend Hushai, the archite, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Is this your loyalty to your friend? Absalom asked Hushai. Why didn't you go with your friend? Not at all, Hushai answered Absalom. I am on the side of the one that the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen. I will stay with him. Furthermore, whom will I serve if not his son? As I served in your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give me your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel replied to Absalom, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. When all Israel hears that you have become repulsive to your father, everyone with you will be encouraged. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And he slept with all his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will set out in pursuit of David tonight. I will attack him while he is weary and discouraged. Throw him into a panic, and all the people with him will scatter. I will strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. When everyone returns except the man you're looking for, all the people will be at peace. This proposal seemed right to Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Summon Hushai the archite also. Let's hear what he has to say as well. So Hushai came to Absalom, and Absalom told him, Ahithophel offered this proposal. Should we carry out his proposal? If not, what do you say? Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given this time is not good. Hushai continued, You know your father and his men. They are warriors and are desperate like a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Your father is an experienced soldier 
who won't spend the night with the people. He's probably already hiding in one of the caves or some other place. If some of our troops fall first, someone is sure to hear and say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even a brave man with the heart of a lion will lose heart because all Israel knows that your father and the valiant men with him are warriors. Instead, I advise that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand by the sea, be gathered to you and that you personally go into battle. Then we will attack David wherever we find him and we will descend on him like dew on the ground. Not even one will be left, neither he nor any of his men with him. If he retreats to some city, all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag its stones into the valley until not even a pebble can be found there. Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than Ahithophel's advice. We're going to pause there. We'll be considering the parts uh, and, and passages that come after this as well, but just for the sake of time, we'll, we'll stop there. God had promised to David. He had made a covenant with David early on in David's life, all the way back in the book of 1 Samuel, that he was going to establish David as king over Israel, that the kingdom of God would be given to David to lead in his kingdom, that through David, he would be establishing a kingdom and a throne, a line that would go without end. And he's faithful to David throughout his whole life as he struggles in, his, um, in, in, in the tensions between him and Saul, and as he struggles with the rebelliousness of uh, the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. He unites the kingdom. He defeats the enemies. He sits on the throne. God just proves his word true and fulfilled and, and faithful to David and all the promises that he had given him. But now we have a son of David who has risen up as a rebel leader, who has led an army into the city, making David have to flee with his most loyal men, his closest elite soldiers. They have to flee into the wilderness. And so now here is God's chosen and anointed king. Here is the one that God promised that he would establish his kingdom and that his kingdom would be without end. Here is that one on the run, on the run in the wilderness. It seems as though that all of God's promises that he had made to David and that he seemed to be upholding are now shaken. We wonder, has God either abandoned David on the one hand? Has he broken his covenant with David? Or on the other hand, has God's promises and his word been overpowered by the schemes of Absalom and Ahithophel and others? It appears as though as we read this passage that the kingdom is threatened, that God's word has been shaken. Yet, what we are going to see as we walk through this passage and we look at what there is to learn from it, that despite the threats to the kingdom, God's word is still proven true and victorious over his enemies. We're going to look at how God's word is true and powerful in three sections. We're going to look at first at how the word is fulfilled. Then we're going to look at the word victorious. And then lastly, the word executed. So the word fulfilled, the word victorious, and then the word executed. Let's begin by looking at the word fulfilled. 
So just as a reminder for you, I know there's a lot of different characters in these, in these stories. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with them, uh, or maybe these stories are new to you. So what we have here is we have the young man Absalom. He is, a, he is one of David's sons. He is uh, an extraordinarily handsome man. He is intelligent. He's clever. He is a charismatic leader. He has deceived the people of Israel into following him in this rebellion against his father. He had left Jerusalem for a while. He amasses an army. Now he comes back, and David has to go on the run because of it. As David is fleeing the city, he, he, he's hearing not just about Absalom's treachery against him. It completely surprised him. He didn't see it coming. But he's also hearing about all these other people who are betraying him by now going with Absalom as well. One of those, and the foremost among them, the one that had caused David to tear his robes in, in agony was a close friend and advisor named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was you know, in the inner circle of David's administration. More than that, it says that he was a friend of David. And yet, he chooses to betray David and to go with Absalom instead. After David hears about that while he's fleeing the city... He comes along this other guy who is kind of an unexpected character, and he seems to be, you know, a little bit of a, of, of a character, if you know what I mean by that. You know, he's an interesting guy. His name is Hushai. And Hushai, right after David learns that Ahithophel has abandoned him, Hushai comes to him and, he's, and he says, you know, I'm still with you. He wasn't expected. He kind of came out of nowhere, but he says, you know, I'm still with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm staying loyal to you no matter what. And so David says to him, I'm excited to hear that, but you'll be better off to me not by not actually being with me, but by being back in the city. So as David is fleeing, you can go back and look at this in, in, in the previous sermons or go back and read the, these chapters. As David is fleeing, he is expressing confidence and faith in God and in God's power to work out the situation, yet he still uh, takes advantage of the means that he has to work through the situation. And so he tells Hushai, I want you to go into the city, and I want you to go to Absalom, and I want you to be an advisor to him so that you will sabotage the plans of Ahithophel. So he sends him back into the city, and more than that, he takes a couple of, uh, of the sons of the priest, uh, these two guys named uh, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, and he sets them up in the city as well, because they were going to go with David, but he says, no, I want you back there because I need information. I need to know about what's going on in the city. And, and, and so you're going to be my information highway. If you go and read later in this passage, you learn that they had also, uh, these, these two guys, found a young girl who lived outside the city who could bring information to them as well. So what David does is he sets up this, this information highway, and he sets up this uh, espionage scheme where he has his man on the inside uh, who is sabotaging their plans, and they can communicate with one another through uh, these, through the, this, this young servant girl and through these sons of the priest to know what is going on in the city. Okay, so that's the situation that we have. In this passage that we read, we, see, uh, we, we now see what's going to happen with that context that's set up. Absalom takes the throne, and he says to Ahithophel, what should I do? What should I do? It says at the end of chapter 16 that Ahithophel was, he was an incredibly intelligent man. And so his advice was almost seen as divine. 
they put so much trust in, and they looked to, but David, whenever he was with him, and now Absalom, they had put so much trust and stock in what Ahithophel said that it was almost like having a divine word. So he says, what should I do now? So Ahithophel gives him this advice. He says, take all your father's concubines, right? So that'll be, um, you know, all, all the women. And he says, and s- take them and sleep with them. Now, this isn't all that uncommon uh, in this ancient society. In these ancient kingdoms, whenever one king would succeed another, whether it was uh, the, the son of a king taking the throne or whether it was a king who had overthrown a previous kingdom, one thing that they would do was they would take all the wives and concubines of the previous king and now bring them into their own household. Doesn't necessarily mean they would sleep with all of them, but they would now take them into their own household because what that was supposed to be signifying to the people is that, uh, is that well, so number one, I am now your king because the king's wives and concubines and his ability to, uh, to have them in his household to take care of them, to protect them, was seen as an indicator of his ability to uh, exercise his rule over the kingdom. Okay, I know, I know it's very strange thinking to us, but this is the way that, that they saw it. So that part of the advice isn't all that uncommon. He's essentially saying, show yourself to be the, the new king, You're the new sheriff in town. But he also says this, um, or what they do is, they take a tent and they pitch it on the roof of the palace so that Absalom can go up on the roof of the palace and actually, not just symbolically, but actually take all of his father's concubines and sleep with them in the sight of all Israel to see. Now, this is some pretty slimy advice, right? Right, it's it's it, it's slimy and it's icky and it's all kinds of levels of gross and messed up. But we need to see beneath the surface of the slime and understand once again what is going on here. Right? It it yeah, it is treacherous and all those things absolutely. But more than that, even what it is signifying, the reason that Ahithophel had told Absalom to do that is because not only is he saying, "Hey, I'm the new king in town," but he's also doing this. He is completely in this action, burning bridges with his father. That's what Ahithophel told him to do. He said, take them so that all Israel will see that you are repulsive in your father's eyes. That was the point of it. That's why he tells him to do this. He said, completely burn bridges with him. Leave no doubt in anyone's mind that you are now the king and you are serious about being the king. You have completely burned all ties and bridges with your father. That's why he tells them to do this. But there's something going on even deeper than the slimy actions, the symbolism of the actions and the logic behind the counsel that was given. There's something even deeper than all those things get that is going on here. We ought to remember God's judgment on David. If you're familiar with the story of David, you remember that he is at the height of his kingdom. He is at the height of his, his career being king, and then he has this great fall that initiates all of the mess and all of the uh, troubles that we see in his life after that. His great fall was whenever he took Bathsheba, another man's wife, for himself and, had her, and then had her husband intentionally killed on the battlefield. He had tried to hide what he had done with Bathsheba and then by having uh, Uriah offed. 
But then God sends Nathan the prophet to go and confront him, to call him to repent, and yet still pronounce judgment on him for what he had done. And you might remember one of the things that Nathan the prophet had said to David, a part of God's judgment. He had said to him, this is what the Lord says. This is back in chapter 12. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. So Absalom's uprising, his own son rebelling against him, fulfilling the words of God. I will bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. More than just the ickiness of the advice and what Absalom carried out, more than the political maneuvering and signaling of all that it meant, what is happening here, even in the advice of a betrayer, God's word is being fulfilled. Here's where we see our first big point. God's word is fulfilled even in the evil actions of men. God's word is fulfilled even in the uh, evil, even in the actions of evil men. We see that Ahithophel's advice and Absalom's treachery only goes to execute God's word. It only goes to fulfill what God had said would happen. What they, what they are doing in believing that they are rebelling and taking over God's kingdom, attacking God's anointed, they do not understand that even in those actions, they are fulfilling what God had decreed and ordained to happen. We see this happening in the New Testament as well. Similarly, in the New Testament parallel to David being Jesus, there's a New Testament parallel to Ahithophel. You might remember his name was Judas, a close friend of Jesus who had betrayed Jesus. Even in the New Testament, we see this similar thing happening. Paul had written about the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And Paul's writing about the night of the Last Supper. And he says this. He says, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took bread. Because it was on that last final night that Judas betrays Jesus. There might have, there, there's indications that he might have already been putting out some feelers with uh, the people who were opposed to Jesus because he seems to have already had a, a deal somewhat on the table. But it's finally on that night that it said that Judas decided in his heart to betray Jesus. So he goes to the, the Sanhedrin to get his payment to, uh, to, to betray him. And so Paul references that night, and he says, so whenever they had the Last Supper, they were celebrating the Passover meal. He says, on the night when he was betrayed. Now, another way of translating the word for betrayed there is to hand over. Paul's using the Greek word paradidomai. Paradidomai means to hand over, though nearly all the translations that you find will translate it as betray, because that's what's happening in the passage. Judas is betraying Jesus. In betraying Jesus, what he is doing is he is handing Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. That was the deal that he had for them, right? You pay me, and I'll give him over to you. I will hand him over to you. That was his act of treachery and betrayal. But Paul uses that very same word, paradidomai, in another context uh, relating to the same action. Notice this. In Romans chapter 8, Paul 
uh, is referring to God, the Father. And he says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up. Do you know what the word is that Paul uses? You can probably take a wild guess. Paradidomai. Paradidomai. The father did not spare him, but he handed over his son. Now, Paul, in another place, has said that Judas handed him over. Which is it? Did Judas hand Jesus over, or did God the Father hand Jesus over? The correct answer is yes. The correct answer is yes. Even Judas's treacherous betrayal of Jesus... Even in that, in whatever he was seeking to accomplish, whatever self-promotion he was hoping to get out of it, even in his wicked scheming against the Lord's anointed, he was fulfilling God's word. He was accomplishing God's will, even in his attempt to oppose it. We see this happening all over Scripture, and we can even see this happen in world history as the, as the wicked schemes and the plans and the plottings of people who would oppose God and their people very often are uh, end up setting a trap for themselves that they fall into and only go to continue and fulfill God's word and further God's kingdom and his purposes. So while the Ahithophels and the Judases attempt to hand over God's anointed, their schemes only carry out God's design. The betrayer fulfills God's word. Now, what does this mean for us? Practically speaking, it sounds nice in these stories, but what are we supposed to do with it in our life? What's this? Take solace in that. Take solace in this. Find your peace. Take solace in the immutability of God's word. That's a big word. It's a theological term that we use whenever we reference the character of God. One of the attributes of God that we talk about in theology is the immutability of God and of his word. Now, what does that mean? Immutability simply means unable to be changed. So when we talk about the immutability of God's character, it means that who God is, what the Bible tells us about him, what the Bible says that he is like, what his heart is like, what his attributes are, those things do not change. He remains the same. Even in his uh, infinity, he remains infinitely the same. His character does not change. Whom we put our trust in, the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can know that he will be tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. He will not change. But it is not just his character and attributes, but his word is immutable as well. His word cannot be changed. His word, what he decrees, his will expressed through the things that he ordains with his word, those as well are immutable. They cannot be changed. They cannot be overturned. The schemes of Ahithophel's and of Judas's and of Stalin's and of Gaddafi's and of whoever else cannot cancel out God's word. It's immutable. It cannot be changed. So, friends... In our own lives, as we look at 
maybe the bigger threats to our lives and the opposition that we experience as people of the kingdom to the kingdom of God, in the uh, anxieties that you feel in your life as you are trying to juggle the various responsibilities that you have, the goals for yourself, the obstacles you are trying to overcome, take solace in the promises of God. Take solace in the promises of God. Hold fast to those promises, knowing that they cannot be changed. When you are wrestling with sin and your, your conscience is stung, your heart is doubting, hold on to the promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what your heart tells you, no matter what guilt and shame tell you on a day that you have fallen into temptation, that you have given over to sin, that promise still remains true. It is immutable and cannot be changed. When you feel those anxieties and you wonder how your life will turn or what, or what the course of history will turn, hold on to Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Hold on to the promise that Jesus gave us at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where he said, And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a small, small sampling of the promises that God has given to his people. Therefore, he has the promises that he has given to us, that he has given to you, that you must fill your mind with and write on your heart. So that in times of testing, in times of difficulty, in times where you feel like you are uh, going to be taken through the schemes of Ahithophel or others, so that instead you can find solace in those promises and you can hold on to them. They can give you stability, they can give you peace and the perseverance that you need. So God's word is proven, fulfilled, and immutable. Even though Ahithophel's advice is considered to almost be divine, I, just, I love that the narrator tells us that because it makes the next part of the story so much better. There, there's almost a, there's really almost a little bit of comedy to it. Here is this Ahithophel, right? This, this guy, he is so highly respected. His his counsel is seen as nearly divine. It says, and then here is a guy that like David found behind a bush, named Hushai. Right? That's, a, that's the way that he's introduced. He's going through the wilderness, and he just kind of pops out of nowhere. Right? Now, he's not a stranger. Like David knows him. But he's, in terms of like renown and reputation, like he, it, it's, he's this odd guy. Right? And so you have a Hittifel, and he gives, David, he gives Absalom this advice. He says, let me lead an, uh, an, a, an expedition right now to go get David. He says, they're on the run, they're exhausted, they're worried. He says, we need to get them now while they are vulnerable. That's the right advice to take. But for some reason, Absalom says, let's hear what he has to say, right? Who's shy over there? And so his shy, it turns out, you know, appearances can be deceiving. Who's shy is cunning. He is, he's smart. He is cunning because here's what he does. He undermines the advice of Ahithophel. That was his job, right? He was he was the saboteur that David had sent in. And here's how he does it. He's got to know something about the guy that he's trying to manipulate, that he's trying to persuade. He's got to know something about his character. 
And so he obviously recognizes something that, let's be frank, doesn't take a genius to realize. Absalom has an ego. He has an ego about him. He, he's got a big view of himself. And so what he does to undermine Ahithophel's advice <clears throat> is he removes Ahithophel from being the center of the solution and makes, <clears throat> makes Absalom the center of the solution. Because Ahithophel said, let me go now. Let me go now and get David. That's how we end this. And he says, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's too fast. He says, you know, they're, they're great warriors. They're valiant men. Uh, this is a little hasty. You know, he doesn't even just say, no, don't listen to Ahithophel. He says, he says, that's great advice just too soon. He's smart. And he says, instead, you should gather a big army. And you should, whatever city that he's in, you're going to tear down stone by stone. He says, and you should go and get him. He's appealing to Absalom's ego, putting, putting Absalom at the center of the, of the solution, putting Absalom in the limelight where he'll get the glory. He tells him this tale of amassing a huge army to go get David and, and, and of the victory and spoils. And Absalom says, I like that advice better. And so he goes with Hushai. Hushai's cunning saved David. After they decide that, because, you know, on the one hand, he did also convince uh, Absalom to take a much, much, much larger army against David. So, you know, it's one of those things where, like, it was good advice, but things could also go south with it. Right? So, so he's like, we need to get word to David because he's okay for now, but there's also going to be a much larger fight. <laughs> and so, so they send the word through, uh, through the priest's sons who are waiting through the servant girl. Uh, to go to David so they know what's going to happen so they can go find refuge and prepare for the fight that is going to come, okay? But Hushai's cunning saved David and his men. It's pretty incredible when we read it. But once again, there's something deeper going on here. And the narrator gives us a clue as to what is happening. The narrator explains in verse 14 that it is not just Hushai's uh, cleverness and his cunning that saves David, but it is God. Because in verse 14, Here's what the narrator says. He says, since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin, Absalom and all the men of Israel said we like his advice better. On the surface, what they saw in the moment, and on the surface what we see is just a couple of political strategists and one guy beating the other out. On the surface, we see espionage, and we see civil war. We see rebellion. And we could miss, if it were not for the help of the narrator, that it is actually God who is in control of this whole situation. The reason that Hushai's advice beat out the advice of Ahithophel is because God had decreed for it to be so, because he was going to bring about the ruin of Absalom, who was attacking his anointed and his kingdom. And so we see our second big point. God's word is victorious over the wisdom and schemes of his enemies. His word is victorious over the wisdom and schemes of his enemies. So often in our lives, just like we could if we were in this story here, so often in our lives, we only see the surface of things. 
we only see the Ahithophels and we see the Hushais. We see, uh, we see bosses and fellow employees or fellow classmates. We see presidents and uh, chiefs of staff and ambassadors. We only see the surface level of the various events in our own individual lives as well as global events. And, we, and we, we wonder how things are going to go. And it's so easy for us to only put our trust in the actors on the surface, the human actors, the who shies winning the day, beating out the Ahithophels, or depending upon the espionage networks or whatever else, without recognizing that God's hidden scepter, right, his, his throne is behind all things, ruling all things. Just because God's sovereignty and his rule over the situation is hidden, it doesn't mean that he is not in control of it. And the same thing is true in our day, in your individual lives, in our life as a church, in a community. The same thing is true in Lafayette. The same thing is true in Louisiana and in our our nation and in global affairs. That though the, the rule of God is hidden, his sovereignty is hidden, he is still in control and rules over all things. The hiddenness of God's sovereignty does not imply the absence of his rule. The hiddenness of God's sovereignty does not imply the absence of his rule. So what does that mean? It means take courage in that truth. Take courage in the sovereignty of God, which is, though it is hidden, ruling behind all things, decreeing that the wisdom and schemes of those who oppose his kingdom will fail and bring about their own ruin. His wisdom uh, and his, his word, his sovereignty that rules over the affairs of all men. Like I said, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the mundane of our lives. Clocking into work, clocking out of work, grocery shopping, diaper changes, taking care of our kids, bringing them to school, or doing your homework and dealing with professors or whatever else it might be. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all the surface level issues of our lives or in the surface level of our, of our national affairs, whether they be uh, you know, political events, media pundits talking about the giving us their interpretation of whatever is going on and getting, and getting caught up in all these surface level issues. Sometimes we might get caught up in making too much and becoming too enamored by the Hushais, right? the ones who turn out victorious while forgetting that it is the word of God that uh, decrees and ordains all the affairs of men in your life and also in our world. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, it says, A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. We see that proven true in this story. Chapter 17. So, if he is sovereign, though his sovereignty might be hidden, if we have the eyes of faith to see that he is still ruling and at work in all of our global affairs, in our local affairs, and in our individual lives, then we ought to then take courage in that fact to live out the kind of life that he has called us to, so that we do not take ourselves out of the mission so that we do not just lay down the calling that he has placed upon your life. Because fear would have us be either paralyzed and quit persevering what he has called us to, or fear would have us quit the game. 
and take ourselves take ourselves out of the game and just choose a life of convenience and of comfort and of safety instead. But if we can rather see that he is in control of all things, regardless of what the surface level elements look like, then we can take courage in that. Meaning, living out the calling, walking the righteous path, doing what he has given us as a responsibility to do. Because we take trust in his rule rather than in what we can see. So take courage, friends. The obligations and responsibilities that God has put in your life, the calling that he has placed before you, some of you have not been following it. You've been allowing fear to reign instead of God. You've been allowing setbacks that, that got you down or disappointed you to then hold you down. Or you've been allowing your sins and your weaknesses and shame from past sin or shame from ongoing uh, wrestles with sin to keep you out of the game, on the bench. Whenever God has called you to get into the game that he has put before you, to step up to the adventure, the calling that he has before you, you need to recognize his rule, the power of his word, and that you are called and that you, your calling is is wrapped up in the power of his word and not the power of men. What he has called you to is grounded in the unchangeability, right? The immutability of his word and not in your power. In his character, not in your character. So take courage means start doing what he has called you to do. Lastly, see the word executed. If you skip forward in the, in the story, like I said before, you can go back and read the full thing later about how the news eventually makes its way to David, and he hears about it so they know what to do. In verse 23, it says this, When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He set his house in order and hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. You see, once Ahithophel, the rebel against God's anointed and God's kingdom, in that moment saw that his advice had not been taken. He saw the writing on the wall. It's not just that he was hurt or offended that they chose Hushai's advice over his. It's that he, he recognized because like we, like we said before, he was an incredibly intelligent man. He was a political genius. He knew that whenever his advice had not been taken, like I said, he saw the writing on the wall that David was going to win. David was going to, become, was going to be the victor in the outcome of this conflict. And so he knew what's going to happen to me since he had chosen the wrong side of the fight. He knew David was going to win and that whenever David regained his throne that he would be uh, that he would execute justice on Ahithophel. So he takes matters into his own hands, taking himself, uh, going home, and hanging himself. Once again, here in the story of Ahithophel, we find a parallel in his New, New Testament counterpart, Judas, who after recognizing the writing on the wall for himself and what he had done, decided to take matters into his own hands and go and hang himself as well. 
the last thing that we see in this story and in the counterpart Judas is that God's word executes justice against those who oppose him. God's word executes justice against those who oppose him. We learn from this story that you cannot oppose the kingdom of God without eventually being crushed by the power of God. Though Ahithophel once again tried to take matters into his own hands, we can recognize that God's word and justice was executed in the death of Ahithophel. In Proverbs 2, 21-22, it says, For the upright one have it the land, and those of integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be ripped out of it. God's word in Proverbs 2 is executed in the story of Ahithophel and of Judas. And that's how it always goes. Those who oppose his kingdom will eventually be crushed by his power. Whether it be in the, the Israelite kingdom here in 2 Samuel, whether it be in the Roman Empire, whether it be today, all those who oppose his kingdom will eventually be crushed by his power. So what about us? We in our sin have opposed God's kingdom many, many times. We in our sin, whenever we choose our own way, are like Absalom's rebelling against our father, God. Choosing our own way, trying to be king, usurping power, usurping authority for ourselves. Whenever we sin against God's word, we are saying, your word is not true for my life, and your word will not rule over my life, but my word will rule over my life. How does that make us any different from Absalom or any other rebel who tries to take the throne? We have assaulted God's kingdom. We have assaulted God's anointed whenever we do not submit to Christ as Lord, as King, but instead, like myself, try to exercise sovereignty over our own lives, breaking his laws, worshiping idols, and so on. So if his word is true, that all those who oppose his kingdom will be executed in his justice, what about us? who are Absalom's, who are Ahithophel's, who are Judas's as well. How can we be added to the upright so that we would be among those who inherit the land and are not ripped from it along with the rest of the treacherous? Here's how. I've referenced how there's these parallels happening with David and Ahithophel and Jesus and Judas. There's a lot of parallels between them, but there's also a big, big difference at the heart of the stories. The difference between the David and Ahithophel and the Jesus and Judas stories is that the Lord's anointed would only be saved in David's case. In both stories, the betrayer betrays a friend and the betrayer uh, dies by his own hand at the end of the story. At the end of David's story, even despite the betrayal, he is rescued. He is saved. God delivers him and brings him back into his kingdom. But in Jesus' story, after Judas hangs himself, he is not saved. He is not delivered from the schemes of wicked men and the rebels against God's kingdom which come against him. Instead, he loses his life as well. Jesus, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, we read earlier, was not spared. Instead, God allowed the schemes of wicked men to succeed. Why? Why the difference? Particularly with Jesus. You know, David, if we had to guess which one of those stories was going to end that way, we would have said, well, it was going to be David's, right? Because David was a sinner. 
David was a rebel against God in his own life whenever he took Bathsheba and in his many other sins that aren't even written down here you know, in Scripture. Certainly he would be the one to yet not be saved in the end because he deserved it. But Jesus, who does not deserve that end, Jesus, who does not deserve that death, why would he receive it? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason that Jesus was not spared in in his story and that he takes on a death that he did not deserve is because he was taking the death that David deserved, which is why David didn't die. He was taking the death that I deserved. He was taking the death that you deserved so that us Ahithophels and Judases so that, so that us Saul's, us sinners, might be forgiven, our sins washed away. That promise that we read earlier from 1 John chapter 1, that God is faithful to forgive all those who confess their sin, that promise is true and it is grounded. We can know that we can depend on it because Jesus wasn't spared. And so since he wasn't spared, we might trust and throw ourselves upon the Lord who would spare us so that we, rather than experiencing being ripped from the land, so that we, rather than being crushed by the just power of God for our sin, might be forgiven our sin because Jesus took it on himself. And so take hold of that forgiveness, friends. Take hold of that grace that is offered to you in the gospel, that your sins can be absolutely forgiven today. Absolutely forgiven once and for all, all the sins of your past and all the sins of your future, so that all of your treachery and rebellion might be washed away and forgotten, so that you who do not deserve to be spared by God might be spared, so that you and I who do not deserve life and blessing from God might receive it because Jesus took our curse. Take hold of that forgiveness today. And then in the peace and solace that comes with knowing that we are secure in the Lord by his grace, move forward in courage and the callings that God has on your life and the confidence that comes from his word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you and we praise you this morning that in spite of all the instability in our lives, in spite of all of the chaos and the things in our life that can change and that cannot be trusted in and that, we, and that we wonder if we will be let down by, Lord, that there is this one thing that we can know is stable, that we can know is immutable, that we can put our feet on and it will be solid ground, and that is your word. Your word, which is always fulfilled. Your word, which is powerful. In your word, which for us who are in Christ Jesus is good. Father, if there are any of us here today who remain under the wrath of your word, who have not cast themselves down before the cross of Jesus Christ, given themselves over to him, left their sin behind, and submitted to him as their king and savior, then I ask that you would bring them into that gospel now. So we might experience the joy of salvation, the um, 
the peace and the satisfaction that comes from sins being forgiven and brought into relationship with you. So we might now walk in the newness of life, so we might walk in the light rather than in the darkness, fulfilling the good works that you have prepared for us to do, loving one another and furthering your kingdom. Father, we once again praise you for your word, and we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.